You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Matthew chapter 7 is where we are going to be today as we come to a close in our series where we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount. And just as a way of recapping, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is trying to show us how to be happy and whole. And therefore, no matter who you are, what we have said is this sermon is relevant to everyone because all of us want to be happy, right? You want to be happy? I want to be happy. Right? Every single person, no matter who you are or where you come from, we all seek happiness. And because Jesus knows this is true, I mean, he did design us after all. He preaches a whole sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, um, where he is showing us how in the midst of our fears and our uncertainties, no matter what season of life you're in, even in the midst of suffering and death itself, how you can have true and lasting happiness. And so it's interesting to me, though, as we come to the end of the sermon, though it's a sermon on happiness, uh, Jesus does not end this sermon with a joke. He doesn't end the sermon uh, with a uh, with a real touching story that leaves us all with a big smile on our face. But he actually ends it with three big warnings, very sobering warnings. And so I want to read this passage to you, and then we'll dive into it. Matthew chapter seven. We'll start in verse thirteen, and we'll read down through verse twenty-nine. Jesus says the following, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you'll recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And if we not drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and they beat against the house yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And then the rains came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he had taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Let's pray together one more time and we'll dive into this. Jesus, um, we desperately need you. I desperately need you. Um, And right now, we just ask that you, through your Holy Spirit, would take these words and that they would move from just being words that come out of my mouth 
uh, or words on a page, to being explosively alive in our hearts. I pray that, that you would capture our imagination and our attention, our entire being, for our good and your glory. And it's in Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, to set up the talk this morning, um, I thought I'd give you a little sociology lesson. So, are you excited yet? Okay. All right. Good. Um, I actually, true story, in my freshman year in high school, made a D. In freshman year in college, sorry, made a D in sociology, which you might think is not good, but I had a 1.3 GPA after my first semester, so that was actually my highest grade. And so uh, I consider myself somewhat to be an expert in the topic. Um, let me share with you real quick three key ideas from three key thinkers in the world of sociology for the purpose of helping us launch into our message today. First off, Buckminster Fuller. Uh, Mr. Buckminster, there he is, was originally an architect who invented the geometric dome. How many of you have ever been to Disney World before? Anybody? Okay, several of you. Then you've been there. This is the man who invented it. He went on to become a systems theorist, which led him to coming up with what he called the knowledge doubling curve, which I believe we can put on the screen for you. And in short, what he estimated, and by the way, others have come on since him or come uh, come later since him, and they've proven this to be true as well. But here's what he estimated. This is the knowledge doubling curve. From the year of Jesus' birth, it took 1,500 years for the cumulative knowledge in all of human civilization to double. 1,500 years. But from there, it took only 250 years to double again. And from there, it doubled every 100 years up to World War II. After that, it doubled every 25 years until the 90s to where it began to double every 12 to 13 months. Now, depending on which Google strategist you read, they put that number at every 12 to 13 hours. And so just do the math. Here's what that means. If you were born the same year of Jesus of Nazareth, it would take a millennia and a half for everything that there is to know in the world to double. Whereas if you were born tomorrow morning, hypothetical scenario, it would double before you even went to bed that night. So point number one from our first key idea in the world of sociology, and I'll put this on the screen for you. We have more information than ever before. This is why sociologists say we're now living in what they call the information age. Secondly, Thomas Friedman, who's a journalist from the New York Times in his best-selling book, Thank You for Being Late, he coined this phrase. He says we live in the age of acceleration. And the idea is we now live in a world that is moving at a breakneck speed. And in this graph, which you can barely kind of make out there on the screen, he, what he says is technology is now increasing so fast we can't even keep up with it. Literally, it's beyond human capacity. And as a result, he says in his book, this creates a low level of anxiety because we never feel like we are able to really catch up. We're always behind, so to speak. So in summary, this leads to point number two from the world of sociology. And that is that we all feel very overwhelmed by all of this information that is constantly coming at us. Third and finally, Neil Postman, who is a cultural commentator and a media critic from NYU, um, in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, he coined a phrase, the information to action ratio, which is all about the amount of information that is coming at us that we actually put into action. And in his book, he uses this example. He says, before the telegraph was invented, think about this. If you heard news, it was news that came from your town. And even the biggest towns at that time are maybe 200 to 300 people. So if you, for example, heard bad news, most likely you heard it through word of mouth and somebody would come to you and say, hey, Joe's barn is on fire. And when you heard that, you didn't get on Facebook and ran about it. You didn't start a hashtag like no more barn fires, right? You grabbed a bucket, you put water in it, and then you actually went and tried to put out the barn fire. Like you did something about the bad news that you 
heard. And I want you to just think today, like how different that is in the culture we're living in, because we hear bad news all the time from all over the world. Like whether it be the 65 day straight protest in Portland that has turned violent or these new mystery seeds from China that apparently, according to the, the Texas Agricultural Commissioner, should be treated as radioactive kryptonite. So if you get seeds from China, don't open them. We're also being bombarded every single day with news about how the death toll is rising and how dangerous this is and that is with the coronavirus and so many other things that are going on around our world. And here's the deal. What's so overwhelming about that is most of us have little to no ability to do anything about any of that, right? Or we can't do anything about it. And therefore, according to Neil Postman, he says we have all been conditioned to now think about this, receive lots of information, maybe even being somewhat emotionally moved by it, but doing nothing about it. I think about the movie Hotel Rwanda, which is based on the true story about the genocide in Rwanda in 1994 that led to a million people being murdered. And there's a scene in the movie, true story, where a U.S. reporter is there. He's captured on video these brutal murders. And this local comes to him and says, oh, thank God you're here. I'm glad an American is here because I know when you capture this video and you send it back to America, America is going to see this video and they're going to be moved to want to come here and rescue us. To which the reporter responded, actually, what's going to happen is, I'm afraid I'll show the video. Americans will look at it and they'll say, oh, man, that is so sad. And then they'll go back to eating their steak. Why is that? It is because what Postman refers to as a high information, low action ratio. As the saying goes, in one ear and out the other. So this leads to my third and final point from the world of sociology. We are now used to hearing so much information and yet doing nothing about it. Now, here's the whole reason I share that. Please hear this. According to Jesus, if you want to be his disciple, if you want to experience a life of happiness and wholeness, if you truly want to know what it's like to experience human flourishing within his kingdom, you cannot let his teachings go in one ear and out the other. You cannot simply agree with the information and do nothing about it. You actually have to take his teachings, take his words, and then put them into action. This is what Jesus is going to point out for us in Matthew 7, where after laying out for us a vision for the good life, of showing us what life is like in his kingdom, he says this, now listen to me, every single one of you have a decision to make. Every single day, this is what Jesus is going to show us in Matthew chapter 7. When you wake up, you have a decision to make and you have to decide what you're going to do. And if you notice, according to Jesus, though we think there are many options, there actually are only two. I don't know about you, but I I get overwhelmed by all the options that are out there. Like you go down the mustard aisle at Walmart, there's 15 different kinds of mustards. It's like, I'm going to get the wrong one. I know it, right? Like, we think there are so many options out there. And Jesus says, let me simplify this for you. There's actually only two. You know, we want an option C, but Jesus says there's just an option A, just an option B. There are just two options. And therefore, because of that, he ends his whole sermon talking first about two roads, then two trees, then two houses. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a short word on each. I'll draw some implications, and then we'll be done today. So first, two roads. Look with me again. Matthew 7, verse 13. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only few find it. So again, Jesus is saying, you're at a fork in the road. Whether you realize it or not, 
one of two options every day, even right now before you can go left or you can go right. You can take what he calls the narrow way or you can take the wide way, the wide gate. And what is the difference between these two? Well, for the sake of time, without going into all the history, here's what Jesus is saying. The wide gate is just that. It's wide. Meaning you can fit through it very easily. You don't even have to leave anything behind. Bring whatever you want into it. You, you just wake up in the morning and just do you, and you can be on the wide gate. Do whatever you want, whenever you want. According to Dallas Lord, that's what the wide what gate is. It leads to the wide road of student. Whatever you want, whenever you want to do it. And so, spend your time however you want to spend your time. That's the wide gate. That's the wide road. Spend your money however you want. Spend your time however you want. Pursue whatever pleasures you want. Sleep with whoever you want. Just do you. Which sounds so good, but in the end, according to Jesus, where does it end up? It ends up down a path to destruction. And by the way, the Greek word for destruction here, it means destruction. So, you're welcome. Um, Jesus says, in our culture, what we are told is, man, you want to be free? Don't limit your options. Go after it all. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, that actually is going to enslave you. That'll actually lead to your soul shriveling up and dying. And that is really bad news. But fortunately, Jesus says there's a better option. He says there is a narrow gate. And though entering through this gate will require you to leave some things behind. Yes, though it will cause you to have to make sacrifices. Though this is not going to be a popular gate, though most of your friends probably will not walk down this path, though it will be difficult to travel, in the end, Jesus says, if you will walk this way, notice, what do you get? You get life, full life, abundant life, and it's so important you hear this, please, especially those of you who are, who are younger, because I used to, I remember whenever I'd hear my dad get up there and preach about Christianity, what it meant to follow Jesus, what I would hear is about all of these rules to be followed. And in my mind, like the gospel was, shame on you for being such a bad person. Try harder to be better. And really what Jesus is saying is come to life. Come to life, like experience full life, deep life, beautiful life. In Jesus, in his life and death and resurrection, there is not just salvation, there is satisfaction. There's not just forgiveness, there's fulfillment. That's the gospel. And it's on offer to you and me, it can be yours, but notice in here, and this is so important. This is not just easy believism. It's not. Notice in here, Jesus does not say that if you want to enter into life in his kingdom, you just have to make a one-time decision. Just pray a prayer. Just ask Jesus into your heart. Get your ticket out of hell. Then go live however you want, but throw a Christian veneer over it. Guys, that's called cultural Christianity. And though it is so popular in the South, Jesus says it has no place in his kingdom. According to Jesus, we have to get this today, he is not just the gate, he is the road. Which means Jesus is not just the way into the kingdom of God, he is the way that we remain in the kingdom of God. As we continue to daily make that decision to walk after him. It's a whole life discipleship. It is literally a thousand small deaths to yourself that leads to one massive life. That's what Jesus is calling us to. But here's the thing. Jesus, he's he's not unrealistic. He gets it. 
Some of you students may be like, did my parents get it? I don't know if they really get it. Like, Jesus gets you. He understands you. He understands all of us in here. And he knows the broad path will always call to you. It's not going to stop. I don't know if any of you, those of you who are older in here, right? Like, I think you'd all agree. It never stops calling. We're always tempted to get back off the narrow path and on to the broad path. And here's what's so mind-blowing to me. I never thought about this before until this week. Notice in here, how does the broad path primarily call out to you? Not through people who, who appear to be for your bad, but people who appear to be for your good. This is why Jesus says in here, verse 15, watch out for false prophets. A more modern translation is, watch out for false preachers. Watch out for people who get up and say, I stand for God, and you should do this, because this is what God would do, when in reality, even if they don't realize they're doing it, they're leading you down a path to destruction. And I would say in light of the context, in light of what Jesus just said in verse 13 and verse 14, what he ultimately is saying here is this. Watch out for people who will tell you that you can have the kingdom without the king. Watch out for people who will tell you you can have the good life apart from following the one who is truly good. Another way of saying it is watch out for people who will tell you that Jesus can be your savior and not be your Lord. Watch out for the pastor, watch out for the preacher, watch out for the prophet, watch out for the friend who bears the name of Jesus and yet is trying to broaden the narrow path to make Christianity easier and more user-friendly. This, in the words of Jesus, will lead you down a path of destruction. Now here's the question, how in the world can you know if someone is doing that? How can you know? And I would say one way you can know if it's a false prophet or a false pastor or, or just someone who bears the name of Jesus or claims to be a Christian but they're actually not one way of knowing is listen to what they say and ask yourself is what they're saying match up with what jesus says that's a real easy test it is and i hope you do that with me by the way you should never just listen to what i say and just take it at face value like test it like does that line up with scripture so you ask like first off does this message line up with the message of jesus but then secondly you don't just see if their message lines up with jesus's message you also have to look and ask this question does their life match up with Jesus's life. And that's where we get to the two trees. We've had the two roads, here comes the two trees. Jesus says, here's how you know a false prophet, by their fruit. By their fruit you'll recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, verse 17, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. So, how do you know when you look at someone's life if they're a true prophet or not? If they're someone that you should listen to and follow? You look at the fruit of their lives. And particularly, you look at the fruit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. And so here's what you should ask yourself when you're looking at me or anybody else who's teaching you, whether it's someone that's on a stage or not on a stage. Is this person's life marked by love? And by the way, to be clear, being nice and being loving are not the same thing. Does that make sense? Some of the nicest people you know are only nice to you because they just don't want you to reject them. So they'll tell you something you actually don't need to hear or not tell you something you need to hear just so you won't reject them. That's not loving. So are they loving? Are they joy-filled? Some of us as Christians, we need to be reminded. Sometimes we need to remind our face of what we say we believe in our heads, that the best really is yet to come. They're marked by joy. They're optimistic. They're, not a, they're, they're, they're actually pleasant to be around. You don't have to splash water on your face just to go spend time with them. 
They're joy-filled. They have peace in their lives. They're patient. They're kind. They're, they're good. They're gentle. They're faithful. They're self-controlled. They're humble. Paul would go on to say that, that, that you shouldn't follow a pastor that's not willing to open up their home to strangers. Do you know that? 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. You shouldn't listen to someone who's not hospitable, who doesn't realize that everything I have is a gift from God, and therefore what I have is it's my dad's, and if it's my dad's, it's your dad's, and come on in. You can have it too. Are they generous? What, what, what Jesus is getting at here is this. How do you know who to listen to? Look at their life and ask yourself, what are they like when they're not on the stage? What are they like? What is their household like? What are, are their kids moving more towards Jesus? You know, one of the things that scared me about having kids is I grew up as a pastor's kid. And I knew the stereotype was true. That a lot of times pastor's kids can be the worst. I actually was friends or knew of seven other pastor's kids in this town. And here's what's interesting. The ones that I knew that I grew up with, all seven of them at this point, at least last I checked, are angry at the church and at best apathetic towards Jesus. Two of them have been in prison. Now, why is that? It could be many reasons, but one of the things that I believe is that because the man that the kid sees on stage saying, Jesus, is different than the man they see in their home. He looks like a godly man, but he ain't a godly man. Just listen to the way he talks to mom. Look the way he spends his money. Look what he's obsessed with. Look how he spends all his time. And nothing makes Jesus seem less appealing than someone who gets up and says, I stand for the Lord. And they live completely opposite of the way Jesus lived. Now, I'm not saying that to beat up on those pastors. Because here's the truth. Sometimes you can be very godly parents. And your kids go completely rogue. And sometimes you can be a terrible parent. And your kids turn out to be incredible. Amazing. Okay? So I'm not just trying to make like a blanket statement here. But what I'm trying to just say is is what Jesus is saying is, look, before you listen to someone and before you choose to like, man, yeah, I want to kind of walk in the path this person's calling me to walk, is listen to their message and watch their life. And that'll tell you if it's someone that you should listen to and follow. Now, one of the reasons, before we move on, one of the reasons this particular warning in this part of the passage is so scary to me is if you notice, what do these false prophets look like? Look at the text again with me. What do these prophets look like? See if somebody can answer. What do they look like? Verse 15. Chapter 7, verse 15. What's that? Yeah. They look like harmless sheep. In other words, they look like church members. So Jesus said they look like church members. They look like good old boys and good old gals. They look like they're in. These are nice people. They probably don't cuss. They probably don't smoke. They probably don't chew or date girls that do, right? They do not look wicked on the outside, and yet because they are dead on the inside, they will lead you, Jesus says, down a path to destruction. And if that's not sobering enough, Jesus really wants to drive the point home with what I think is possibly the scariest verse in the entire Bible. Chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Translation. Hear me, religious south. Not everyone who prays and asks Jesus into their heart will enter into heaven. 
Not everyone who walked down this aisle and prayed a prayer and maybe even cried and got emotional will enter into heaven. These people, Jesus said, there will be people who will stand before me on judgment day and will literally call me Lord, Lord. That means they know I'm God. They have the right theology. They know I'm the, the ruler of the universe. They're not stupid. They knew the facts. And they on earth said, oh yeah, Jesus is Lord. And you'll spend eternity in hell. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name? And in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Here's what Jesus is saying. The truth is, you can have a lot of impressive religious activity. Notice in here, you can prophesy. This is weird. This is a crazy verse. You can even cast out demons and perform miracles and still be lost. And by the way, the reason Jesus lists those three things, a lot of times in the church today, we think like, oh, those are like stuff that weird people do. Like, no, Jesus, it's not. Those are good things to do. So you're doing some of the best stuff out there. You're preaching the truth. You're, t- you're, you're helping bring healing to the streets, casting out demons, performing miracles. That's some of the best stuff a Christian could do, right? Looks great. But Jesus says you're lost. What is he getting at? Please get this. I'll put it on the screen for you. Religious activity for Jesus is no replacement for relational connection to Jesus. Religious activity for Jesus is no replacement for relational connection to Jesus. What Jesus is saying is there's coming a day where you will stand before him or some will stand before him and he will say, depart from me. Why? Because they never had a relationship with him. Did a lot of good stuff for him. They never really wanted to be with him. Jesus is going to say to you, though, listen, I I know I had your works. I never had your heart. And therefore, away from me, you evildoers. Now, let me ask you this question. I didn't think about this till this week either. Why would Jesus call people who do good stuff evildoers? Why would he call someone who claimed that he was Lord with their mouth, taught people the scriptures, performed miracles? So you come up, and I'm, I'm down on my back, healed, and cast out demons. Why would Jesus ever call someone like that evil? Here's why. Because the entire law, Jesus says, is summed up by love. Love the Lord your God with all your strength, all your mind, all your heart, all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, if you don't do what you do because of love, that's evil. If you don't do what you do out of a love for God and a love for others, that's evil in the sight of God. doesn't matter how good it looks on the outside. Because again, what has Jesus been getting at all through the Sermon on the Mount? Your heart. Your heart. Jesus says, these people did a lot of good stuff, but they didn't do it because they loved me and loved others. They did it because that was just the right thing to do, by golly. They did it because they wanted to be impressive. They did it because maybe they wanted to appease their own conscience. And Jesus said, I'll say to you, depart from me. I never knew you, you evildoers. So how are we doing so far? Everybody glad you came this morning? Feeling good? Happy? A little pep talk from Jesus? So you have two roads, you have two trees, finally you have two houses. Verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. In other words, you don't let this go in one ear and out the other. 
You're like a wise man who will build his house on the rock. But the, and the rain came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words is like, ah. Do not put them into practice. You're like a foolish man who's building his house on the sand. The rain came down, the stream rose, the winds blew, beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. To make this as simple as I can, in Jesus' day, the house was a metaphor for what you built your life on. And so what Jesus is saying here is if you're a wise person, you're going to build your life on Jesus and his teachings. But if you're a foolish person, you're going to build your life on someone or something else. You're going to be someone who hears Jesus' teachings. And maybe you like it, maybe you don't. I can't tell. But for whatever reason, you don't put it into action. And we don't know why. You know, in this parable, you have one wise, one fool, one puts in the action, one don't. We don't know why. Maybe the fool is just too busy. He had a career. Kids are in traveling sports. He's going all over the place. Uh, Maybe he's just tired. He's wore out. He's dealing with trauma from his past that he's never really learned how to get healing from. Maybe he just looks the way of Jesus like, that's just too hard. That's too overwhelming. Maybe he's been tricked into believing that the narrow path is actually a broad path because of pastors and what they've told. I don't know. We don't know what it is. All we know is there's a wise man in this passage and there's a fool in this passage. One who's building their house on the rock, one who's building their house on the sand. And Jesus doesn't tell us why. He just says they have. And I think the reason Jesus doesn't tell us why the person built the life on the sand is because he wants you to find yourself in the story this morning. And the question you need to be asking right now is this, which one am I? Am I the wise man or am I the fool? Am I building my house on Jesus and his teaching or am I letting it go in one ear and out the other? You see, what's so scary to me about this warning is you really can't, know which house is which can you i mean you really can't know the difference between the wise and the fool on the surface i mean think about if you're driving by a house both houses look the same on the outside you don't you can't really know what the foundation is on like how healthy the foundation is so how do you know the difference how do you know if you're wise or if you're the fool How do you know if you're building your house on the rock or you're building your house on the sand? Well, Jesus says there's one way you can tell the difference, and what is it? He says you'll know when the floods come. And listen to me, guys. The floods always come. It's not a matter of if, but when. Maybe it's a diagnosis. Maybe it's a phone call. Maybe it's a tragedy. It's the loss of a loved one. It's a disease. Some bad news of some kind. The flood always comes. And Jesus is brutally honest about this all through the Gospels. And I, for one, find that pretty refreshing. Oddly enough, I find it refreshing, one, because he's honest about it. It's hard to find people who are honest and will tell you the truth, even if it's difficult. First, I love that Jesus is honest. Secondly, I love that it speaks to the human condition. We all know life is hard, don't we? Life is dang hard. And Jesus doesn't be like, ah, nah, it's not. It's all a bed of roses. So he's honest and he just speaks to the human condition. And third, I find it pretty refreshing because here's the thing. If you expect life to be easy and you think there's not going to be any bumps in the road, it makes life harder, does it not? 
But on the flip side, if you actually expect that life is supposed to be hard, that you're actually going to have troubles in this life, just as Jesus said, it doesn't make life easy, but it sure can make it easier. I think about Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in Texas, uh, who has had a profound impact not only on me, but Adam, all of our pastors, and therefore our church. I don't know of anybody that God has used in my generation. I don't know if, Adam, you can think of someone, but I can't think of anybody God has used more globally than Matt Chandler for his kingdom. But in 2009, Matt Chandler, on Thanksgiving morning, got up to give his daughter at the time a bottle, his baby girl, fell over from a seizure, uh, just sort of seizing out, finally stopped. They get him to the hospital thinking, okay, maybe it's just a fluke. They scan his brain, and he has a massive tumor that's encapsulated in his brain. And what they end up uh, saying is basically, look, we're going to put you tomorrow in a nine-hour surgery. You may or may not come out of it. If you do, there's a good chance you're going to be blind, mute, or deaf. And then if you come out of that, we'll do at least a year of chemotherapy. And maybe that'll work, maybe it won't. And I'll never forget, I think we have a picture of Matt after he had a surgery and sort of chemo. This was his first sermon. And he said, somebody came up to me recently and asked me, Matt, have you ever asked God, why me? Why me? God, I mean, Matt, Matt, you are one of the most godly men the world knows. Pastor of a massive church, you actually love your wife. You've never cheated on her. You love your kids like crazy. You're pouring into them. You're shepherding their hearts. Have you ever stopped and asked, why me? And Matt responded by saying, no, but I have asked, why not me? Because he said, when I read the Bible, the Jesus I follow said, in this life you will have many troubles. You will face many troubles. And so I asked, why not me? Here's the thing about Matt. If you watch his story and praise God, he, he, he was healed. And God healed him. But if you watch and followed his story, and it had a lot of ups and downs, touch and goes throughout that, that next year with chemotherapy, according to the people that who knew him the most, said Matt never got bitter, never got angry at God, and just carried about him this ferocious joy that was so contagious that even more people came to Christ through his ministry during that time than ever before. And the whole reason I just share that is just to say this. Please hear me today because there are other pastors who have told you different, and it does not align with the scriptures disciple of Jesus or not, you're going to experience pain in this life. Please hear that. Because if you don't, what's going to happen is whenever suffering comes, you're going to say, God's left me. I must have done something wrong. He's punishing me, isn't he? Disciple or not, you will experience pain and suffering and hardship. But here's the thing. If you will build your life on Jesus, though he will not lead you out of hardship... He will lead you through it. That's the promise he gives us here in this text. The floods are going to come, but if you build your life on him, they will not destroy you. On the flip side, if you build your life on greed, if you build your life on materialism or competition, if you build your life on sex or beauty or looking young or popularity or a pleasure, the ability to travel and just do whatever I want, whatever I want. If you build your whole life and all the decisions you make on your kids or your grandkids or even your spouse, as good as those things may be, if you build your life on anything other than Jesus, according to him, the floods will come. And when they do, your life will fall at that moment with a great crash. And my guess is, like we've all could point to people we've experienced this in like, whether it's a family member or a friend or a celebrity from a distance. We've all seen the people who are like high and mighty and life is going well. And you're like, man, I wish I was them. And then, bam, everything just crashed. And by the way, listen to me. I hope we never look down on those people, ever. 
Because none of us are immune to this. None of us are. None of us are beyond this. None of us are untouchable. And if you think you are, listen to me carefully. In the words of Solomon in Proverbs 16, 18, pride always goes before destruction. Pride always goes before destruction. Jared, are you trying to scare us this morning? Yes, I am. I am actually trying to scare you. I've been out for, what, four weeks, five weeks from preaching, so I was like, I'm coming in hot this morning, right? (laughs) Jokes aside, there really is such a thing as a healthy fear, and we all need it. The Bible is clear. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. There's a fear that actually leads you into life. I want my kids to have a healthy fear of walking out the street without looking both ways. Why? Because I don't want to be smashed by a truck. They're not trying to get smashed by a truck, but it can happen. I took my kids on a little hike through Village Creek a couple weeks ago. Here, uh, through It goes through Paragold. I think it actually ends up out by Cache, Arkansas. And the, the, the plan was to go about five miles. And we packed our lunches, and it was great. And we got about two and a half, three miles in. And I came across this fallen timber. Um, and so I told the kids, like, hey, stop here. Let me get up on this. Then I'm going to try to pull you up. We'll go over it, and then we'll continue. We couldn't go around it. And so I got up on the, this pile of wood, and when I did, uh, here's what I saw next. This was about uh, maybe 10 yards of the most away from me. That is a timber rattlesnake, ladies and gentlemen, the most poisonous snake in North America. Never seen one in the wild before, but I saw one that day. Now, here's what I did. Because of a healthy fear, I did not pull my kids up there and say, let's just step over it, right? I got down, and I said, we're going another way. That is exactly what Jesus is trying to do to you in this message. Some of you are on a path right now. And you might even be swaggering, man. I don't know, maybe really you're in a good season right now. I don't know. But if you're on the broad path, Jesus says there is a snake on there who wants to kill, steal, and destroy you. That's bad news. But here's the good news. If you feel fear this morning, you can get off that path right now. And you can turn around. And you can go another way. And according to Jesus, you can live. And you can live life to the fullest. Jesus is trying to wake some of you up this morning. For some of you, this is meant to be a message that is to shake you out of this apathetic religious state. Where you do a lot of good stuff for God, but maybe you don't really experience him personally in a powerful life-giving way. And I would say this, I told this at the first service, to the person in here who is not scared right now, at least a little bit, you should be most afraid. This should create in all of us a healthy fear. Not a toxic fear, but a healthy fear, which leads us to all asking these hard questions. To be honest about the fact, am I on the broad path right now or am I on the narrow path? And here's the thing. You can't look at your you can't just look and say, Do I show up on Sunday? Do I tithe regularly? But where is your heart? Does Jesus have your heart? That's what he's after. We have more information than ever before. We feel overwhelmed by all the information and we're used to hearing the information and doing nothing about it. And that's why I would say in a cultural moment like ours where the information to action ratio is, 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 is so low, in a culture where it's so easy to hear a teaching and be like, mm, amen, but then do nothing about it, I think it's so brilliant that Jesus ends his sermon today on reminding us this, listen, that your goal as a disciple is not to be informed, but transformed. 
your goal is actually to take what he taught you and to put it into practice, to become more like him. And so with that said, as we end today, I just want to ask you this. I'm in front of a crowd and there are people still watching through the live stream or listening. Wherever you are, I'm going to ask you a question that only you can answer as an individual. Is there anything in your life right now that you know God has commanded you to do that you're not doing? Is there anything in your life right now that God has commanded you to do that you are failing to act on? Some of you, maybe today, you feel stuck in your relationship with God. I'm telling you, you're stuck at the point of disobedience. You're not moving beyond that. You are stuck at the place where you know God has called you to do something and you've refused to do it. And so I don't know what this means for you. Maybe for some of you, it means you need to plug into community. I know that's really hard in the coronavirus. It's really easy to hide in this season more than ever. And I would encourage you, whatever it looks like for you, to begin to, to plug in with some brothers or sisters. Maybe for others, it means that you need to seek to forgive someone who's hurt you. Maybe for others, it means that you need to honor your father and your mother, whatever that looks like, or confess sin, or give generously, or stop looking at pornography. It means that maybe for some of you men, you learn to lead and love your family well. I don't know what it is, but listen, please don't just journal about this. Don't tweet about it or or put an Instagram. I mean, you can do that if you want to, but more than anything, please just do not leave this as a thought in your head. Guys, this is a warning, not from Jared Pickney. I didn't come up with this message. This is a warning from Jesus. And it is a warning that should arrest all of our hearts and point us to the abundant life that is only found in Christ. And that's really what the Sermon on the Mount, that's really like the whole goal of the Sermon on the Mount, really, is it's meant to show you that none of us can live up to this perfectly. All of us in here have had times where we have failed to live up to Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, haven't we? And if you don't think you have, go back and read Matthew 5 through 7 today and call me and then tell me with a straight face, like, no, I've actually killed it all. I'm amazing, right? Like, we've all struggled in all of these areas. And that's why Jesus starts his whole sermon by saying, blessed are who? The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In other words, not blessed those who write it, like, oh, I know I'm good. Pastor, I ain't scared of jack, man. Like, I'm, I've got it down, like, that's not, it, it's a poor in spirit. It, it, it's not a swagger, it's a limp. It's a Jesus man. I, I need you more now than ever before. Do you realize spiritual maturity, by the way? Side note, please hear me. Spiritual maturity is not you doing this to where you say, I need Jesus less and less. Spiritual maturity is saying, I actually need Jesus now more than ever. If you don't think that, Jesus will not become sweeter and sweeter and sweeter and sweeter to you. The gospel will be old news. What this is meant to do is to drive us to our need for Jesus, his perfect life, death, and resurrection. And that's what we see happen to close this morning in verse 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because Jesus taught as one who had authority, unlike their other teachers of the law. You know why Jesus walked in such authority? It's because he doesn't simply have the truth. Jesus is the truth. He would say at one place, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, I am the gate, and I am the road. I am your way in, and I'm the way that you continue. Therefore, trust in me, my perfect sinless life, my death on your behalf, my resurrection, the fact that I've given you my spirit so that you can now walk in these ways and experience human flourishing in the kingdom of God. All that said, if you decide to follow Jesus... It will cost you. 
But if you choose not to follow Jesus, it will cost you way more. Therefore, the invitation today is to trust Jesus. And how do you trust Jesus? You listen to his voice and you obey. You listen and then you obey. You listen and you obey. And you know that when you do, through this long obedience in the same direction, even if everyone else is turning away, if you will continue to trust him, he will lead you into a deeper and fuller and more beautiful and resilient life than you could ever imagine. You know, I've thought a lot about... um, this week about this text and how Jesus ends a sermon. And it really is a haunting way to end a sermon, is it not? And by the way, how many of you, you grew up in the church? Let me just see a show of hands. Okay. Over half for sure. You're actually at a disadvantage on this one. If you grew up with the flannel graph in your Sunday school class, you're at a disadvantage because we've heard the Sermon on the Mount so much, it's just like, it really does go in one ear and out the other. And so just think about this. Use your imagination for a moment. Imagine being a disciple and hearing a sermon end like this. So just imagine I get up and I just delivered this teaching. And it was the best teaching you've ever heard in your life. Total hypothetical scenario, right? And so, but it's the best teaching you ever heard in your life. And then imagine I end my sermon like this. All right. Those of you who just paid attention the last 30 to 35 minutes, if you will take my teaching and you'll apply it to your life, things are going to go really well for you. Life's going to be good. You're going to experience life and life of the fullest. But imagine that I end like this. But to the rest of you in here, whether you liked it or not, I don't know. But you just need to know this. If you don't apply this teaching, if you don't walk in these ways, a flood's coming and it's going to destroy you. God bless. How you doing? Yeah. It's pretty awkward, right? But here's the thing. You have Jesus' teachings. So what are you going to do with them? Brother? Brother?